Amen. Book of Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 6. Everybody say amen when they're there. All right. Ezra 7 and 6 says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And... um, Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful and it is anointed. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and minister in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, as as you all probably remember, the last few weeks we've been studying the writings. And we actually, we began with the life of Solomon. Then we jumped into the writings of Solomon. We finished off before we went into Solomon's writings in First and Second Chronicles. At the end of Solomon's life, uh, what happens is uh, the, there is a united kingdom under the reign of Solomon. Solomon is ruling Israel and everybody is under one roof. Um, after Solomon dies, there arise two men. Um, And they both begin to contend for the leadership of Israel. Um, Both men uh, make some very grave mistakes. And the nation of Israel is divided in two. The northern and the southern kingdoms. Um, the, the, The kingdom which will be known as the kingdom of Judah. Um. Uh is warned. They are told that um, there is coming a country out of the north, which is Babylon. Um, And Babylon is going to take them captive. They are not to fight. Uh, They are not to resist this captivity. God is not happy with Israel. And uh, he is going to allow them to be taken away captive. Um, you You can even read the directions that God gives them in the book of Jeremiah. I believe it's chapter 29, if my memory serves me correctly. And he instructs them what to do as they're led away captive. They resist this captivity and it does not go well for them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, and I'm, some of this I'm just kind of winging off the top of my head, so please forgive me if I'm off by a year or two, but um, Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 B.C. Uh, sieges uh, uh, Israel, and he destroys the temple that Solomon had built. This glorious temple that had been built and dedicated to God is now destroyed, and the Jews are led away captive into Babylon. They will spend 70 years there in Babylon. One half, one fraction is led away to Assyria. The other is led away to Babylon. But for tonight, we're going to focus in on the ones that were taken to Babylon. Um, The group that is taken into Babylon stays there for 70 years. At the end of those 70 years, um, King Cyrus of Persia, the Persian Empire, which will extend all the way to Greece eventually, begins to uh, run throughout the world and they're conquering everybody. They eventually take Babylon itself. And um, King Cyrus um, uh, uh, will then, in order to restore order throughout the then known world, he does something very unique and interesting, something that even Alexander the Great will do later um, as he starts taking over the then known world. Um, They allow people to hold to their beliefs and they allow them to return to their own countries from which they were taken captive. Now, what is interesting in the case of the Israelites is that um, the prophet Jeremiah, during their captivity, had actually spoken a prophecy about this. 
And these are some of the most fascinating prophecies in all of the Bible. And it actually, there are prophecies that flummox biblical uh, interpreters and scholars, uh, especially those that have a leaning towards a non-literal view of the Bible um, or, or, or that believe that some of these events are fictitious. And I don't have time to get into all of them. But um, this prophecy that Jeremiah gives in 29 and 10 um, is actually very fascinating. But there's another one that I'll give you later. It's by the prophet Isaiah, which which when you consider the fact that Isaiah lived centuries before King Cyrus and he prophesies about the captivity right down to the name is is just amazing. And a lot of people don't even know what to do with it. But it's, in my opinion, sure proof of how true the Bible is. But in Jeremiah 29 and 10, he says, For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Speaking of Jerusalem. And so after the 70 years are up, amen, King Cyrus uh, takes over Babylon and he begins to release Jews back into Jerusalem. And there are three groups of people uh, that are released back into Jerusalem. And the first group of people uh, are led by a man uh, by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is a kind of a governor um, uh, over the Israelite people that have been in captivity. And uh, he is the first one to enter into Jerusalem. And at this at this phase, amen, uh, Jerusalem has, has been pretty much desolate. Uh, the temple is no more there. The grounds have not really been taken care of. It's a very hostile environment. And Zerubbabel and the Jews arrive. And the first thing they do when they get there is Zerubbabel commands, amen, for there to be a celebration um, of tabernacles. He, 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 they, they, they celebrate what's known in, in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish world as the, as the feast of Succoth, which literally means the, the festival of booths. And what Jews do, they still do it to this day. Um, they will all live inside small booths uh, for a period uh, of, of, of time. And what they are doing is they are remembering uh, the time that they spent wandering the, the wilderness for 40 uh, years. And so the first thing they do is they observe this holiday of, of booths. Amen. And uh, as soon as they are done doing that, they lay the foundation for the new temple, uh, the second temple. There are three temples in Israel's history. The first the Solomon's. The second is the one we're going to talk about today. And the third is the temple of Herod, which is around in the days of Christ. But this second temple, the foundation is laid. And the first thing that Zerubbabel does, amen. And I've, I, get, I get goosebumps every time I think about this. The first thing that Zerubbabel does is he begins to order that there be sacrifice made. And this is a wonderful lesson for life. When you are rebuilding, amen. doesn't matter whether you are reestablishing a church or reestablishing your life or making your way back to God or you know, trying to get up from a fall. The first thing you want to start doing is sacrificing. And we don't sacrifice to attract God, but we sacrifice to let God know how attracted we are to him. The reason we make sacrifices in the kingdom, amen, is not because we think that God needs our money, our time, or our finances, but we want God to know that he means more to us than our money, our time, and our finances. Amen. Hallelujah. In fact, you might remember um, what, I'll just keep going. Amen. But, but, but Zerubbabel establishes that they should start making sacrifices and they start making perpetual sacrifices. I mean, they start off just with, I think it's, you know, I think there's three mandatory sacrifices that they make throughout the day, but then all of a sudden they're going into these perpetual sacrifices. And, um, um, 
they, they, they get the, the temple erected. Um, and it's, it's, it's not very pretty. It's very austere looking. It's, 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 it's not as colorful or as vibrant or as beautiful as, as Solomon's temple. And one of the, one of the most uh, crucial parts uh, that we first run into in the book of Ezra is found in Ezra 3 and 12. And it says, But many of the priests of the Le- uh, priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house or the first temple when the foundation of this house was laid um, before their eyes wept. Everyone say wept. They wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. Ezra 3 and 13 says, So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. And so here they are. They've been making sacrifices. And Zerubbabel says, now let's get the temple up. And as they get this temple up, there are people that um, a younger generation that begin to shout with joy. They're excited. And there's these older people, amen, that had seen the temple of Solomon. They remember, amen, making so many sacrifices in this temple uh, that the glory of Yahweh, of Jehovah, enters the temple and they cannot even minister. And so there, there's these young people that are excited about the building and there's these old men that are saying, you guys, it's not about the building. It's about the glory of God that enters into the building. Hallelujah. It's about the presence of the Lord. And I hope that by the time we're done here at East Bay, we can stir up a presence of God here. Hallelujah. Amen. That is the distinct mark of this church. Praise God. And I know myself, I'm trying to commit myself more to bring, amen, 30 minutes before for every service. I want people to know that the glory of the Lord dwells in this house. Hallelujah. And I know that most of us here can remember a time, amen, uh, in our early church uh, uh, church life when there was just, it was just about the Spirit of God. Amen. It's the Spirit of God that heals visitors, fills them with the Holy Ghost. It's the Spirit of God that heals saints. It's the Spirit. That's what we really want in here. Hallelujah. We want a phenomenal moving of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It's, and, and so, here they are. You see this first, this, this clash, amen, of generations. And and the, the noise is such a cacophony of confusion that most people don't even know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Amen. But um, needless to say, um, the temple is up and uh, they are ready uh, to do business. And um, Zerubbabel now, uh, a certain amount of time lapses. I believe it's almost a century, to be honest. Um, but a century passes. The temple's up. They are, they are in Jerusalem. They are trying to reestablish uh, and, and regain a foothold in what they consider to be, amen, their motherland, their spiritual center and hub. And um, uh, the king of Persia, again, releases a man to go into Jerusalem by the name of Ezra, who, of course, this book is named after. And he is commonly known by many people as Ezra the scribe. And you can see why, because it says in our opening verse that Ezra was well versed in the law of Moses. And uh, Ezra 7 and 10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And so we see that now the temple is built. Amen. And in comes Ezra. And Ezra's concern is not just with the external structure. 
structures. But his, his concern is with the internal structures of God's people. They have a temple. That's great. Amen. They, they have the walls up. That's great. They have the, the, the altars up. That's great. But Ezra says we need to know the law of God. We need to know the word of God. And if you personally ask me, amen, I would tell you right now that this church is in an Ezra phase. Amen. Where we just have to proclaim what the word of the Lord says. Hallelujah. And you'll probably start hearing me say things you've probably never heard me say. But I have, I have an obligation of God. Amen. Not just to find a building. Amen. Not just to try to bring in the glory of the Lord and pray. Amen. But I have an obligation and a mandate from God. Amen. To teach the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's not popular in every church. Hallelujah. There's a lot of churches trying to slice and dice. Some you, We use highlighters around here, not Sharpies. Praise God. Amen. We're, we're, we're interested in what the word of the Lord says. We're not trying to nix and cut out parts of the scripture. Amen. But um, Ezra will now begin to work on the internal structure of Israel. Uh, and he teaches the law. And at, at some point, as Ezra is teaching and expounding, and um, you got to remember, these are people that have not heard the word of the Lord for, for, for almost a century. And Ezra starts opening up the scrolls and reading them and going through the law and going through the word. And Ezra discovers in the midst of all this that there's whole sectors of the Jewish people that are married to non-believers. They are married... Uh, they have married the people that were left, the fragments of people that were left in Jerusalem, which were not Jews at this point. And in fact, this is what actually gives birth to the people we'll read about later in the New Testament, known as Samaritans. And um, in fact, when when they're building, um, there, there's this there's this zeal for purity and 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 uniqueness that 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 grabs a hold of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But when they are building. Um, there's actually the, the foreign people that were living there in Jerusalem at the time. They tell Ezra, they tell him, we, we, we know what this place is. We know the God of this area. We, we know, we understand. We want to help you build. And Ezra and Zerubbabel say, we don't need your help. This is, this is God's people's job. Amen. And, um, but Ezra begins to discover that several of the people um, are not married uh, to Jewish people. They, they have now begun to intermarry. They are, they are married to non-believers, and in some cases, quasi-believers. Hallelujah. And um, Ezra does something that has a lot of controversy attached to it. But um, in fact, I, I, I read some commentary. I went through some commentary on the book of Ezra, and I found it so disturbing what some people said that I read the whole book of Ezra today uh, just, to, just to clarify, amen, uh, my position. But uh, Ezra commands for a nationwide divorce. Beginning with the leadership. Amen. Beginning with the leadership. Um, in fact, they tell Ezra. Ezra says, we, I, I heard one commentator say that, um, I thought it was ludicrous. The commentator said that um, Ezra had never heard from God to tell these Jews to divorce from these non-Jews. Um, Ezra didn't need to hear from God. Ezra had a word from the Lord. In Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, it says, You shall not, everyone say, you shall not. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. 
Ezra didn't need to pray about this. Ezra didn't need, amen, to work this out. Ezra And Ezra didn't feel that the people needed to work this out either. In fact, he told them it has to go down today. We have to, we have to correct the wrongs today. Ezra's position is this is how we ended up here. This is how we ended up in Babylon. This is how we ended up being taken captive. This is why our children were killed. This is why our ancestors were destroyed. Because we started intermarrying. We started, we started thinking that we were like anybody else. And we can, we, and, and, and let me tell you something. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they were very, uh, they were very high up there in society. These were not what you might consider men who, who had just come out of the desert and didn't know. Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, they didn't know much. These were very educated uh, men that had inter, that had gotten into the highest courts of society, but they still held to God's word. Amen. I'm telling you, you don't have to compromise anything that we believe. Amen. God can bless you. God can open doors for you. God can get you to the top. God, you, we, there, there is absolutely no reason, amen, for us to compromise anything we believe. Amen. You can, you can, you can get a promotion holding, having a conviction. Hallelujah. You can move up, amen, with conviction. Amen. You don't have to release your And you know what? I'm telling you, if you have to release your conviction, it's not a promotion. Hallelujah. If you have to let go of what you believe fundamentally, amen, it is not a promotion. No matter how much money you make, no matter what you come out with, that is not a promotion. It's a promotion when you hold on to what you believe and God gets you to places, amen, hallelujah, that everyone's wondering how you got there. Somebody shout amen. Hallelujah. And so they marry. They intermarry. And I'm, I'm just going to be very frank with you. They, they, they intermarry. And here's the problem with, with marrying people that are non-believers. It brings you low. You get what I'm saying? It, people who live in high altitudes don't have problems with high altitudes. You know who has problems with high altitudes? People that live in low altitudes. Uh-huh. And when you marry somebody from low altitude and you're high altitude, they're going to be struggling to keep up the whole time. Uh-huh. Yeah. You got these big, bolsterous lungs. Whew. And they got these weak lungs and they're getting headaches and dizzy. And your church attendance bothers them and your tithing is crazy and... And they think this is a little... Cr- and I'm telling you, I've, I promise you, I've never seen somebody marry an unbeliever and it work out. I've never seen somebody marry a quasi-believer and it work out. It doesn't work. I would rather be... And, and listen, I, I, I want you to know, um, it happened to me, and, uh, and I believe it's the current case, and I don't, I don't mind saying this. Uh, uh, this is recorded. I'll put it on the internet. I don't. I don't. I, I. I don't mind saying that there's a lot of slim pickings out there these days in the church. I, I don't mind telling you, Amen. I know there's a lot of people uh, that are ready to get married, but I also know that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot from the world affecting the church, and a lot of people are not even thinking in terms of marriage this day, and that that complicates things. Hallelujah. But the complication that's in society and even leaking into the church is not a good excuse, Amen. To to break God's laws and commandments. Hallelujah. Yeah, you're, and, and, and just to be clear about this, I don't believe that God holds this position, amen, to hurt us. I believe he holds this position because it protects us. It's a blessing to us. It's a blessing to you. I don't know about you. I don't want to trade in feeling the Holy Ghost. I don't want to trade in God's presence and rich blessing in my life. I don't want to trade that in for anybody or for anything. Amen. I'm telling you, it took me a long time to find my wife. Amen. And when I first met her, she was young and I had to wait several years. Amen. And she had to wait for me. Praise God. Uh, and, 
and, and there was, but even during that time, there was a lot of prayer meetings she had to have. And there was, there was a lot of things that could have gone wrong and, and, and stuff like that. But you know what? It's worth every prayer meeting. It's worth every day of fasting. It's worth fighting for. Amen. I, I, I want to stay in God's flow and God's word. I want to stay in God's will. Somebody say amen. amen. The believer loses to the unbeliever. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked. And I believe that Paul is actually confirming to us what the, what the final analysis is. He says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? 6.15 says, And what concord has Christ with Belial? Amen. Or what part hath, the, um, hath he that believeth with an infidel? And so they have all these marriages. The scripture is very careful when Ezra's talking to say that these marriages are abominable. They are abominable. And um, there's several interpretations to this. I'm going to tell you mine. When you are married to an unbeliever, they just don't have the same standard and ethic and code and moral as you do. And so what an unbeliever will allow into their home and into their marriage only because it's not appropriate, only because you probably don't want to know. But I can't tell you how many times I've had to counsel people who marry unbelievers and never considered what that person might bring into the marriage. Never considered the practices that that person has, the behaviors that are totally fine in the world, but will wreck and ruin a believer's life. So the book of Ezra ends with this nationwide divorce where everybody is now returning back to God. They are, they're, they're writing their wrong. And what this triggers is the very last phase of our study for tonight. And in comes a man by the name of Nehemiah. The temple is built. The religious and ethical moral structure is now up by Ezra. And Nehemiah now comes to build a wall around all of that. Hallelujah. So you have the building itself. Then you have the spiritual and ethical moral dynamics. They're up. And now God says all of this has to be protected. And so we're going to build a wall around this. And it's very interesting to me that God knew exactly who he was choosing for all those assignments. Zerubbabel was this governor type. He could manage people. He can get them all running. Ezra was a scribe, well-versed in the word of the Lord. And then God picks out this man by the name of Nehemiah. And I'll tell you who Nehemiah is. The Bible says that Nehemiah was a cup bearer. And... Um, If you don't know what cupbearers did in Bible times, it's actually quite fascinating. These men would stand by the king and they would not only hand him his drink, but they would also drink everything before he drank it. And the cupbearer was a person who lived in very high risk because at any given moment they could die for the king. But they lived every day of their life ready to die for the king. The cupbearer was a risk taker. He lived a life of risk. And because he lived his life on the line for the king every day, um, he was very financially rewarded. In fact, Nehemiah 5 and 8, Nehemiah 5, 8 through 10, 14 and 17 actually leads to, uh, uh, would indicate that Nehemiah himself 
uh, was, uh, was very, uh, had a very lucrative position as the cupbearer. But God chooses um, this risk taker, this man uh, who was ready to take on even the worst situations. And this, was, this is important because when Nehemiah begins to build the wall, and, and it happens throughout every phase of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but as Nehemiah begins to build the wall, people begin to come and badger him every day. And they're telling him, man, you can't do this. You can't build this wall. It's going to fall. It's not going to last. This is, this is silliness. But Nehemiah 6 and 15 is the key verse to it all. It says, so the wall was finished. Everyone say finished. finished. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month of Elul and in 50 and 2 days. In 52 days, Nehemiah, amen, built the wall of the Lord. In fact, that, that, that phrase, it is finished, uh, is also found throughout the book of Ezra when they build the temple. But in 52 days, um, Nehemiah builds this wall. But for 52 days, he is, he is badgered. For 52 days, he is insulted. For 52 days, he is laughed at. For 52 days, he's told he can't do it. And you know what Nehemiah tells those people every time that come to criticize him? He says, I cannot come down for I am doing a great work. I have no time to listen to you. I have no time to argue with you. I have no time to to put out your rumors. I have no time to answer your criticisms. Amen. I am doing a great work for the Lord and I cannot come down. And I promise you that when you set your heart to do something significant for the kingdom of God... Amen. You're going to have people that are going to tell you you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. You're going to have people that are going to talk about you. You're going to have people that are going to mock you and laugh at you. Amen. Hallelujah. But Nehemiah gives us the answer. Amen. Just ignore it and keep on building. Don't come down off your wall and finish that wall. Finish that wall. Hallelujah. Finish that wall. Somebody say amen. Praise God. You finish that wall. I when I read about Nehemiah and when I know what he is. Uh, and I think this is, this is critical. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, when a saint, when a church stops taking risks, it's in trouble. There's just risks we have to take. There's just, and I'm not talking about foolish risks. I'm not talking about uncalculated, uh, not clearly prayed about, thought about risks. But I'm just talking about just getting out there in the kingdom and 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 and, and getting into some risky business. Praise God. Uh, not not when when we're not willing to put some skin in the game. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Uh, Nehemiah lived his whole life with skin in the game. Amen. And he was rewarded for it. Amen. Um, It's been my experience that where you see saints or churches that are no longer taking risks, that are just trying to create stability, um, you're going to see a stagnation just settle in and and, and the rewards uh, are not going to be there. Praise God. Um, Nehemiah was the right man for the job. He was the risk taker. Amen. And uh, I, I do pray that by the I do pray. That we are able to sustain a certain amount of a risk factor here. Um, my, my genuine desire is that, amen, we, we maintain a willingness, amen, to get out there. Yes, sir. And to put it out in the front. Amen. amen and to build. Yeah. And to build. Oh, yeah. And to build. And to build. And to build around the things that God has given us. Can you say amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word.